welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last week we studied a warning from the Holy Spirit. A warning that some will depart from the faith. Some disciples would wander off course following the foolishness of men rather than the words from God. And throughout this letter, Paul has charged Timothy to be on guard and vigilant against false teachers. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, we saw that it is the mission of the church to proclaim and guard the truth. And today, in chapter 4, we will see that it is the elders, pastors' responsibility to lead the church in this mission of proclaiming the church, sorry, proclaiming the truth and guarding the truth. In verses 6 through 16, we will look at 12 responsibilities of a good servant of Christ Jesus. But for the sake of time, we're going to split this section up into two sermons, two Sundays. With this in mind, let's go ahead and read the entire passage, even though we'll only look at half of it today. Paul says to Timothy, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, especially of those who believe. And then for next week, we'll look at the, the following verses. It says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His mercy and His grace as we seek to understand these words and let them sink deep into our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the words you have given us. Thank you that they are written down and that we can come to them often. I thank you that my memory is not required for every word of yours. Thank you for this, these words, this book that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you'll help each one here this morning. Some things brought up in your word are difficult. Many times we think we understand but what we need is the Holy Spirit to take these words and show us our need. Show us how much more joy and fullness you're offering 
Help us not to be satisfied with where we're at now. Lord, may our hearts be um, to see godliness increasing in our own lives, not so that we can be proud or boastful or we can say we've arrived, but so that we get you, so that we get to understand who you are and so that we get to glorify you and rejoice in living according to your way. Would you do that in us this morning? And would you help us as we look at your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins in verse 6 with the word, if. He tells Timothy that if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. There were responsibilities placed on Timothy. And Timothy's response would determine if he was a good servant or a shameful servant. Would Timothy be like the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament who faithfully delivered God's words, even to kings? Or would Timothy be more like Jonah, who tried to run away across the sea instead of proclaiming God's words? Would Timothy follow Jesus' example and teach the words from the Father? Or would Timothy be more like Lucifer, who only spoke or quoted God's words in order to twist it, in order to use it for personal gain? Timothy would only be a good servant if he put these things before the brothers. Timothy was responsible to lay out or spread out these truths, the the truths and warnings in this letter, so that the entire church could see them, examine them, and then follow them. I'm sure we take for granted the difficulty of what Paul was asking Timothy to do. Timothy is just a young man in his 30s and somewhat of an outsider to the church in Ephesus. Yes, the the Ephesian church may have recognized him from, from a previous missionary journey, but right now, Timothy is not with Paul. Paul's not with him, and he is all on his own. There are assertive men in the Ephesian church, as we've seen in previous chapters, assertive men who confidently affirm that the way to godliness is through adherence to the law of Moses. Some of these men even question whether Paul is a legitimate apostle because Paul is here going to the Gentiles and including them in the redemptive story. In this same community of believers, there are wealthy and influential women who have turned the church into a fashion show, distracting the church from seeing the beauty and worth of God. These same women were most likely also using their wealth and influence to elevate themselves into teaching and ruling positions within the church. With this in the back of our minds, it's not hard to imagine that some influential men and women were going to be hostile toward the message that Timothy was supposed to lay out in front of them, to set before them. The fear of man must have been a constant temptation for Timothy. Would he shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God out of a fear of man? This is a common struggle for pastors today. Yes, some pastors are actively leading their churches into false teaching, but there are other pastors who are struggling to find the courage to speak the truth 
to their increasingly secular congregations. And it's not just the fear of upsetting people. Add to this fear the real possibility that if a pastor angers the wrong influential person in their church, he may well lose his income, be shamed within his denomination, and be forced to find other employment. How could anyone speak the truth under these circumstances? Paul encourages Timothy to think on this. To think on the fact that those who speak the truth despite opposition will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Amen. Yes, an elder pastor is a servant of the church, but the church is not his master. Christians have only one master. We must always choose to obey God rather than men. This idea of being a servant of Christ may be strange to some. It's a, it's a lot easier for our modern ears to hear the descriptions of sons or heirs or friends. But in verse 6, Paul uses the word servant to picture our devotion to Jesus. To be a servant literally means to kick up the dust in your eagerness to minister to or serve your master. A lazy or unfaithful servant finds a cozy spot out of sight to curl up and take a nap while his master is away. There's no dust being kicked up by them. But a good servant is busy with the responsibilities entrusted to him. The first responsibility entrusted to Timothy was to put these things before the brothers. And the second will empower this responsibility. Paul says that Timothy is to be constantly training in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he had followed. Some of your translations say being trained or nourished or constantly nourished, but they all point to a continual, constant building up of Timothy's understanding and conviction of the truth. The second responsibility is to continually return to the table of God's Word and receive spiritual nutrition for your soul. Amen. Paul uses two phrases to describe the truth from God. Timothy was to be nourished by the words of the faith, which specifically points to the Christian confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that salvation is by grace through faith in His name. Christians are nourished through consistently returning to these declarations of our faith in Christ alone. He is our salvation. He is our life. And He is our only hope. If the all-sufficient Christ, that message, is left out of a Christian's diet, then they will begin to show the signs of spiritual disease, which are legalism. Asceticism, as we discussed last, last time. Immorality, and maybe pride. Drinking deeply from the words of the, uh, these words of the faith provide both the remedy for spiritual disease and the nutrients required for growth. Timothy was also 
to be nourished by the good doctrine that he had followed. The, the good doctrine specifies the teachings or instructions for life that when applied properly have a beautiful outcome. That's what good means in this sentence. Beautiful doctrine. These doctrines are not stale academic statements. Instead, this instruction in God's way brings beauty and blessing in the life of the one who applies it. This consistent nourishment from the Word of God enabled Timothy to set the truth before the Ephesian believers. But the third responsibility of a good servant is a negative statement, something to avoid in order to keep the truth pure. Paul says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Some of your translations literally translate the Greek, which says, but refuse profane old wives' tales. Paul is contrasting the truth of God's, of God's words in verse 6 with the wisdom of man that opposes the truth. It's another way of saying that even if God could ever say something foolish, it would still be wiser than the wisest opposing statements of man. All these man-made improvements to God's words are as ridiculous and worthless as old wives' tales. Like the one that says that spilling salt brings bad luck. But if you take a pinch of it and throw it over your left shoulder, then it'll chase the bad luck away. That's what Paul's saying. It's worthless. It's ridiculous. Reject it. Timothy was to have nothing to do with the irreverent notions that were floating about in the church. This does not mean that Timothy should not understand enough to refute the nonsense. Amen. But he was not to entertain these foolish notions as legitimate for even a moment. To help us understand this third responsibility of a good servant, think with me for just a moment of some blasphemous and unholy wives' tales, silly myths that are floating around the modern-day church today. One example is the saying that's very common, that it's always God's will to heal, and if He doesn't, the problem lies with us. The story goes on to say that if you had more faith, or if you just gave more money or sowed a spiritual seed, then God would be able to heal you as He really wants to. Another blasphemous saying, quote, Jesus died for your financial prosperity. Hashtag money cometh. This message is extremely popular, and especially with the poor. It go, the, the saying goes, if you follow Jesus the way we tell you to, He's going to make you rich. Maybe these seem too far-fetched for some of you. So let's bring it a little closer to home. A common myth among Baptists is the saying, My adult child doesn't read their Bible, doesn't care to pray, and really doesn't love the local church. But at least they were saved when they prayed a prayer as a child. I guess they're just a carnal Christian. This example may hit very close to home for some of us. 
And understandably so. There is a fervent, burning desire in the heart of every Christian parent to know their child will never spend eternity in hell. But praise be to God for parents who refuse to live in denial of the truth. Who refuse to affirm the salvation of their adult child as their child runs headlong into hell. These parents know and proclaim through all the tears and heartache that it is truly merciful. It is truly loving to give your children no false assurances. But instead, as God gives you opportunity as a parent to point to the book and point to their life and say there is no evidence of your salvation. That is truly loving. A good servant of Christ Jesus will proclaim and guard the truth, which he has consistently nourished himself with, taking care to reject any foolish notion that sets itself against the truth. Instead of letting foolish ideas fill his mind, Timothy is called his fourth responsibility. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Here Paul uses athletic language to get his point across. As an athlete conditions their body through rigorous effort in order to increase physical stamina, so the Christian is to condition their mind and heart in order to increase in godliness. A few weeks ago, we saw that godliness can be defined as an accurate understanding of God that results in a right life lived before God. So it's both an accurate understanding and this life for God. In chapter 3, we saw that Jesus was the revelation of perfect godliness. He perfectly understood God. And he lived perfectly according to that knowledge. Jesus, the Son of God, revealed the Father to us. And now each Christian is called to have this understanding of God. To pursue this accurate understanding of God and then live within that understanding. Every Christian is called to the pursuit of godliness. And in chapter 4... Verse 7, Paul encourages Timothy to dedicate his time and effort not to silly myths, but in training himself for this godliness. You might ask, how does a Christian train himself for godliness? Well, our definition of godliness will help us see the answer. The the definition goes that godliness begins with an accurate understanding of God. To train yourself for godliness, you must spend time in God's Word, learning about who He is and about His way. You cannot claim to be training yourself for godliness but have no clue of who God has revealed Himself to be. That would be like me saying, I'm training to be an Olympic surfer, but I've never seen the ocean. 
an in-depth knowledge of and interaction with the words of God is essential in our pursuit of godliness. However, our definition of godliness gives us another key element to consider. Godliness is an accurate understanding of God. But the second part says that results in a right life lived before God. Bible study and knowledge of God accomplish nothing if they are not accompanied with obedience. In fact, with greater knowledge of God comes greater responsibility to obey God. And with greater knowledge of God comes greater condemnation to the one who rejects God. Godliness requires both accurate understanding and obedience. Leave off understanding, let it fall to the ground, and you will spend your whole life chasing after every new wives' tale that comes your way because you won't know, you won't recognize it as foolishness. Amen. Neglect obedience, let it fall to the ground, and you, risk, you run the risk of being counted with the hypocrites who knew and said all the right things but whose faith was dead. Faith without without works is dead, as James says. In verse 8, Paul continues the theme of training for godliness by calling Timothy to look to the athletes in Ephesus. He says, think of their struggle, think of their pain, think of their personal sacrifice, and all to attain physical strength that will soon fade away. Paul says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. There is value in physical fitness, but it should remain in its rightful place as just another means through which I pursue godliness. Godliness must never bow the knee to aspirations of physical perfection. Unlike physical strength that will fade, it will fade. Godliness is a value in every way. See what he says here. He says, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You cannot put a price tag or expiration date on godliness. And the good news is that you don't, there is no waiting period either. Because godliness holds promise. Promise that it produces a joyful and blessed condition in this life and the life to come. Does it mean that those who pursue godliness will have no earthly struggle? No. Jesus promised his disciples, that in this life they would have trouble. The trials, tribulation, and suffering need not steal your joy and blessed condition in God, with God, before Him. There is no power on this earth that can separate us from the love of this God who has purchased us. And the more we understand His love and live according to it, the greater our joy, the greater our blessed condition, and the less turbulent this life will appear. This truth that godliness brings blessedness even in the midst of suffering was so real and evident to the early church 
that this was one of their well-known sayings. As Paul says in verse 9, he says, The saying is trustworthy. It was a saying amongst them. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's saying you can trust this truth. You will not regret the pursuit of godliness. You will not regret training yourself in the words of God. You will not regret seeing the Spirit of God take more control of you and work out His plan through you. You will not regret it if you see your spouse drawn to God by your example. If your children grow in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. You will not regret it if your co-workers come to saving faith because God chose to use you in them. You will not regret it if your church sticks together like, like glue and grows in spiritual maturity because you are the hands and feet of Christ in their life. And then when this life is done and you stand before the Lord, you will not regret a single amount of effort you put into this pursuit of godliness. Amen. Especially because you will hear your master say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We are not going to regret that when we stand before him. We are far more likely to regret being so distracted by the busyness of this life that we had no time to pursue God in his way. Paul goes on to give the fifth responsibility of a good servant of Christ Jesus, which follows closely on the heels of training for godliness. He says in verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. A good servant of Christ Jesus toils and strives in hope. When Paul says, for to this end, he is saying, with this as our goal, or with this as our desired result, he is pointing back to our discussion about pursuing godliness, its promise for the life to come, eternity. Paul is pointing to the kingdom of God, God's eternal rule and reign. That is what we long to live under, fully at peace with God and men. This blessed condition is the goal of our toil striving. The word toil means to labor with body and mind to the point of weariness or exhaustion. The word strive means to contend, struggle, fight. It describes an intense battle for dominance. The athletic analogy describes well the Christian life. There are times in competition when things are going well. Often in the beginning when there's lots of energy and excitement. When you are doing well and your opponent is on the back foot, you sometimes feel invincible and your striving for victory comes naturally. But anyone who has boxed, wrestled, and forgive me for using the analogy, I wrote this before yesterday evening, anyone who's played rugby <laughs> could tell you that in the most intense and exhausting moments of the fight, they could tell you in the most intense and exhausting moments 
when two adversaries are striving for dominance, the body and mind oftentimes switch over from some mere just friendly competition to a state of fighting for survival. Just think of all the times you've seen the intensity on a rugby field explode into an all-out brawl between opponents. It's because they were approaching that intensity of the fight. This intensity of fighting for survival will often be a reality in the life of a Christian. Yes, there will be times of respite when we're pushing the opposition back and victory is within sight. But there will also be times when the struggle against the flesh, the devil, illness, and weariness becomes intense. Amen. It's like when the All Blacks are only one meter from our try line. You're tired, battered, and bruised. It's all you can do to gas a bit of air and keep breakfast down while at the same time making one more try-stopping tackle. This is the intense toil and striving, the pain a Christian often faces in life, in daily life. But why wouldn't a Christian lie down on the try line and just let the opponent in or through? Why does a Christian keep striving for godliness even when it hurts? Why would a Christian keep running even when our lungs are burning and our legs are going numb. Paul answers, because we have our hope set on the living God. We do not give up or lie down or quit running because our eyes, our hearts, our passion and desire are fixed on on the reward, the one who is our reward. The reward of knowing God being at peace with God and being filled with His blessed condition. And we have no fear of being disappointed for our effort because our God is the living God. He is no dumb and deaf idol. He is not an imposter destined for eternal death like every other God. Our God is the living God. From Him life first came. In Him we are granted life now. And through Him all Christians will be granted eternal life in the end. Life can be found in no other. Every person who ever lived will either find life in this God. Or they will experience eternal death under His wrath. God has opened his arms wide to all humanity. As Paul says at the end of verse 10, the living God who is the Savior of all people. There is no people group outside his ability to save. The call goes out to all. But essential to realize is that there is no other option. There is no other hope. If you place your hope in anything else, it will lead to disappointment, emptiness, and ultimately eternal death. People from all nations, tribes, and tongues must kneel before and worship this God. 
the God of their own making will not suffice. And this God has been revealed in and through the Son, Jesus the Christ. God declares that all who would have life must repent of their sins and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This message is for all people. And all people will be judged based on their response to this Jesus. As Peter proclaimed to the Sanhedrin, there is no, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our God, the living God, is the Savior of all people, and as Paul says, especially of those who believe. You must believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. Yes, God has opened His arms wide to all people. No one who repents and believes will be rejected, but no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. As we close this morning, you may be sitting here thinking, I'm confused. Why all this talk about toiling and striving to gain godliness if Jesus has already done all the work to save us? Didn't the thief on the cross go to heaven even though he never had a chance to do anything good? Well, it is correct that Jesus has paid it all. Those who trust in his name have no debt of sin to pay. That is true. It is also correct that Jesus has accomplished all righteousness on our behalf. Our balance of righteousness isn't negative. It's not zero. It's full and complete because Jesus puts his arm around us and says, They're with me. They are in me and with me. But going back to the athletic analogy, it is important to realize that when Christ freed us from slavery and made us alive, it's like he put running shoes on our feet and said, Start running. Pursue godliness. It is God's delight to have his children work out their own salvation in this life. Not that we earn salvation, but that we live in it and according to it. Christians run and pursue godliness because Jesus has saved us. He put running shoes on our feet, and then he told us that all who love him will run. And he has promised that as we run in pursuit of godliness, he will give us greater and greater delight in him. We get to experience more and more of the blessed condition of knowing and living with the God who is good. He doesn't just do good. He is good. As David says of God in Psalm 16, verse 11, You, O God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has revealed to us the beauty and the glory of your plan of taking rebellious sinners and turning them into your children, your family. And not just a family that serves you and does your bidding, but a family that you are sharing your blessed condition with. You have welcomed us in with arms wide, and you are sharing of your goodness with us. Lord, I pray that each one here would strive to know the goodness of the Lord, to experience it in their own lives, and to be filled with the joy of knowing God and living according to His way. Would you accomplish this in us? May we praise the Son, glorify the name of Jesus, all to the praise of the Father. Amen.